morning. So there's a couple of other announcements that Shelley did not share. Uh, first of all, uh, the shorts are celebrating or have celebrated a couple birthdays in the, the coming weeks. Shelley's was this week, and Marion's, I understand, is this coming week, tomorrow. So we're just uh, so so blessed uh, by both Shelley and Marion and, and how much they uh, commit to the, the church. So happy birthday. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, the other announcement a lot of you may have heard, uh, Pastor had a little incident yesterday, uh, banged himself up a little bit, so he is taking the day off uh, to mend. Uh, Lord willing, he will be returning next week. Uh, if you came in early this morning and you picked up a program, you have the bulletin insert, uh, the, the scripture passages. Uh, we try to take them out, but if you snuck in early, if you could pull those out, uh, Lord willing, pastor comes back next week. He will be sharing the message that he had prepared next week, uh, and then uh, you will be uh, blessed with that. Uh, but in the meantime, a pastor had earlier announced that today would be, uh, that we'd be celebrating communion today, uh, which is a little bit... Uh, a little bit different than the way that we normally do. Normally, we celebrate communion as a church, as a family, on the first Sunday of the month. Uh, Pastor had a very specific uh, idea as to why he wanted to celebrate uh, communion today, and he's not here. So uh, we will be celebrating communion, uh, but I will be sharing a message around communion, uh, and I will ask for your your prayers uh, for this because I found out that I'd be doing this uh, less than 24 hours ago. So I don't, uh, I don't have any slides. Uh, I don't have any handouts. Uh, what I do have is scripture. <laughs> Amen. So when churches celebrate uh, communion, the go-to passage, and of course it's my go-to passage, and it's pastor's go-to passage, and it's the go-to passage for just about any communion service that I've ever been in, uh, would be out of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, in the words of institution for the Lord's Supper starts with verse 23 and it says for and right there we need to stop right because you remember I spoke a couple weeks ago maybe three weeks ago on John chapter 3 verse 16 for God so loved the world we have to stop every time we see the word for we have to stop and think about why is that for there that for is there to connect what's coming with what came before so in order to understand what Paul is trying to teach in 1 Corinthians Starting in verse 23, we need to back up and see what the context is that he's sharing this information. And actually, we need to back all the way out of Corinthians and understand why did Paul write the letter to the Corinthians in the first place. So Paul, as you know, uh, was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was uh, zealous for the law. And to the point where this new upstart uh, movement uh, called Christianity or Christ followers, uh, he was going to stamp it out because it didn't fit with his understanding of the law. And if anybody understood the law, it was Paul. Paul was on top of things. So he made it his mission to go out and stamp out this new upgrowth, this thing called Christianity. And then we know the story. It's in Acts as he was uh, going to Damascus. He had a face-to-face -face encounter with the Lord, uh, his conversion experience. After that conversion experience, then he became equally zealous for the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he would go to different communities and he would plant churches. So these would be Gentile communities. 
the church started, of course, in Jerusalem with the Jews, and then Paul took it to the Gentiles, and he would go from community to community and, and plant these churches and spend some time there and get them built up, and then he'd go on to the next, to the next community to do it all over again. Uh, Paul was not a pastor in the sense where you know, he would plant himself and stay there for 30 years and nurture a flock. He was a church builder. That was his mission. So one of those churches that he built was the church in Corinth. So he built the church, he spent some time there, he, he taught the leaders how, or what this thing about Christianity is, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then he moved on and he planted other churches. Over time, over a number of years, he started to hear reports about the church in Corinth, and they started to twist their theology. They started to misunderstand what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus. And they were trying to take what they had known before and then patch it into Christianity. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a new life, right? Because we are born again. So whatever we had before is dead, and we are new creatures in Christ. The Corinthian church, they misunderstood that. And so they were trying to patch Christianity into what they were already doing. And so Paul said, okay, we got to stop this. And so he wrote the letter to the, the Corinthians. Now, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, for those of us who work, uh, we get performance evaluations, right? And those are never fun. You get called into the office, and there's a sheet of paper with marks all over it, and your boss goes through it and tells you how good or how bad you're, you're doing over the past year and what you need to work on. And it's never fun. And good bosses, smart bosses, you know, they try to balance it. So they'll have like a good thing balanced against something you need to work on, and then another good thing balanced against something else you need to work on. Uh, but it doesn't matter if you had 11 good things and one bad thing, it's the bad thing you're going to be dwelling on, right? Because that's, that's what happens to me anyway. That's, I fixate on the fact that I didn't sign my timesheet. You know, forget the fact about all the employers I talked to. I forget to sign my timesheet, so I'm the worst employer or employee in the world. Uh, that's how I feel. So that's probably how the Corinthians felt when they got this letter. Um, Paul really tried to find some good things to share. He wasn't able to find very many. <laughs> now, keep in mind, when, when Paul wrote his letters and when the other uh, authors of, the, of Scripture wrote their books and wrote their letters, they didn't write in chapter and verse. They didn't go chapter 11, verse 1. They just wrote. And it was much later that the chapters and the verses came in. Uh, but for our purposes, the 1 Corinthians chapter 11 starts off with something kind of positive. Okay, you're kind of doing this okay, right? Uh, I'm going to skip that part, though, because that's kind of taking us away from the message. And I'm going to jump down to verse 17, where Paul says in verse 17, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Okay, so that probably caught some attention. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church or an assembly, which we talked about last week, we've been talking about that, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Okay, this is not a good thing. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. <laughs> what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. Okay, so let's deconstruct this a little bit. What Paul is saying 
is that there are those within the Corinthian church, and by the way, by extension, the church today. We have, to, we have to acknowledge that. But there are those within the Corinthian church who use their status as Christ followers uh, sort of as a merit badge. Okay, I am important because I am a Christian. I am important because I follow this person named Jesus. Okay, uh, and you can see the evidence of this because I am rich. I am successful in business. I am a leader in my community. So God is blessing me with this, which proves that I am a Christian. This is what Paul is talking against. Okay, that is not the badge of Christianity. The badge of Christianity is how we treat each other. And what is our relationship with Jesus? That is the badge of Christianity, but the Corinthians missed that. And the Holy Spirit in his wisdom saved this letter because we can also point to ourselves and say that there are those within the church today who also fall into this trap of using Christianity as a badge to show how good we are. And that's what Paul's talking against. So with that as a background, now we get into the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Okay, let's stop there for a second. Normally when we have communion, we have just a couple minutes or we normally just take a couple minutes and we go through this and the words are important and they're, they're heartfelt and we believe the words and we, we react emotionally to the words. Uh, but we really want to slow down today and actually take a look and see what Paul is saying. Or that's what I want to do. So, for I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. So after Paul had his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, you know, first he went and, and he met with Cornelius. But then he went off and he spent three years alone in the mountain with Jesus. Three years. Now, when Jesus had his public ministry, he spent three years with the disciples and with his followers. So three years with John and James and Peter and, and, and Andrew and Nathaniel and Bartholomew and the others. I, can anybody name all of them? Judas is one of them, right? Simon is one. Uh, so I'm up to eight. Uh, but, he, he <laughs> but Jesus spent three years in his public ministry, you know, going around and healing people and teaching people and giving the Sermon on the Mount and doing all the things that he did and many, many, many more things that are not recorded or not kept in Scripture, so we don't know everything that he did in three years, but he did it with his disciples. Then he spent three years alone with, with Paul. Okay, think about that. So you got a guy, Paul, who is the Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, he is the smartest of the smart. You know, I don't know what his IQ is, probably off the chart. He knows the law. He knows this thing called religion. He knows it. And then you had three years of intense one-on-one <laughs> instruction from the person who wrote the scripture in the first place. You know, that just raised him from here to, I can't even raise that high, you know, with his knowledge of what it means to be a Christ follower. Now, was he perfect? No, of course not, because he's human. But that's how Jesus and, and the Lord was equipping him to go to the Gentiles, to spread the gospel of, the, of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, to write the letters that he did so that they can be preserved for scripture so that we can benefit from that. So when Jesus spent three years alone with Paul, it wasn't for Paul's benefit, it was for my benefit, it was for your benefit, because we have that recorded now in scripture. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So this is a direct revelation to Paul from the Lord himself. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, 
Okay, two things about that. First of all, the night that he was betrayed. The night. The night that he was betrayed was when they were celebrating the Passover. And the Passover is incredibly significant. And I do believe that Pastor is going to work in some comments about Passover and the message that he had prepared that he'll be sharing next week. So I don't want to dwell too much on the Passover, but we do need to know that that was the setting. They were having their Passover meal and what the Passover meant. And that the Passover itself was a forerunner for Jesus himself. So when the Jews for 1,400 years before Jesus was born were celebrating Passover every year, they were looking forward to the manifestation of the Passover in the person Jesus Christ. And that's what they were celebrating. That's what they were doing on the night that he was betrayed. The second thing, he was betrayed. And this literally just occurred to me as I was preparing for this morning in just a little bit of time. I read this every month, and I just kind of skip over that part. I, I skim over that part. I know that he was betrayed. I know that Judas was there, and I know that what Judas did. But let's stop for a second. Let's think about that. Judas had spent three years with Jesus, going from town to town, seeing all the miracles that Jesus was doing, listening to all the sermons, listening to all the messages, and then all the private conversations that he had for three years. How are you betrayed? You're betrayed by someone who's close to you. You're betrayed by someone who claims to have allegiance with you. That's the definition of betrayal. Otherwise, it's just an enemy. And an enemy you can kind of deal with because you know that they've got different intentions than you do. And so you just kind of deal with that. But a betrayal is someone who treats you as a brother, who is a brother. But then he does something like this. So in thinking about this, uh, prior to this morning or preparing for this morning, I was thinking about this. Judas betrayed Jesus. This is a very deliberate word. I believe this is a very deliberate way that Paul is describing this. It's not just that he didn't say on the night that Judas betrayed Jesus. He didn't say that. He said on the night that he was betrayed. The night that he was betrayed. Because I think what he's saying is that any one of us have the capacity to betray our Lord. I, I really believe that we do. And I believe that we have the capacity to betray our Lord when we take our eyes off of what is the main thing. You know, when we start acting the way that the Corinthians act, where we start using Christianity as a badge for how good we are, that's when we are at risk of betraying our Lord. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay, familiar words. We say this every month, uh, and we, we know the words. We understand what they mean. Uh, but I do want to go through it a little bit. This is my body, which is for you. Now do this in remembrance of me. And I think this has a couple of, of meanings to it. And first of all, we know that Jesus was betrayed. We know that he was taken before the, the Romans. Uh, after the, the illegal uh, trial by the Jews, he's taken to the Romans. Uh, and Pilate found him, literally found him, it's in scripture, found him not guilty, but I'm going to flog you anyway. 
And I think that's significant. Pilate found him not guilty because he wasn't guilty. He wasn't guilty. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, was born and lived his entire life without ever committing sin. Okay, he was born of a virgin, so he didn't have the original sin in him, and he lived his entire life without ever committing sin, and yet he was found, or he was found not guilty, and yet he was flogged. Okay, he was beat. His body was broken. It is absolutely significant that Jesus lived a sinless life. He lived his life. Because if all it took to forgive us of our sins was the death of a sinless God, of, of Jesus himself, Jesus could have come down on Good Friday. He could have gone to the cross. He could have died. He could have been buried. He could have been resurrected on, on Easter Sunday and gone back up to the Father. And, and that would have satisfied the payment of sin. But that would not have made us righteous. The only thing that can make us righteous is the righteousness of Jesus. And the only way that Jesus can have righteousness is if he lived the life that he lived and lived the life that we live so that we can take his sinless life and, and incorporate it over ours so that when the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He made him who knew no sin be sin on our behalf so that we may have the righteousness of Christ in him. Okay, That's what it means. He lived a sinless life. Think about that for a minute. And we talked about this before. Think about that. You are God. And you created the world and everything in the world. And you created man. You created all the animals. And then man screws it up. And you say, I love my creation so much. I am going to redeem my creation by being born as a baby human, helpless in his mother's arms, raised as a child up into boy and then man. This is God who's doing this. Subjecting himself to the humiliation of being born helpless in his mother's arms and everything that comes with that. The God who created us gave himself for that. He gave his body for that. And when we share communion together, that's one of the things that we need to keep in mind, I believe, is that this is the God who humbled himself to come and be born and live a sinless life so that we can have that righteousness uh, through our faith in him. I think that's what this is pointing to. So do this in remembrance of me. When we share communion, we need to know that, that we're demonstrating that. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the cup symbolizes the blood, the blood that was spilt to, for our sins. So a, a quick story. When I was a kid, 100 years ago, one of, the, one of the teaching devices that they had at the time, the teacher would wheel in this big reel-to-reel -reel movie projector, and they would put the big reels on it. Uh, one of them, uh, which I always kind of enjoyed because they, had the, they uh, licensed the Donald Duck characters, so there's cartoons within this thing, uh, but Bell Laboratories, which at the time had the monopoly for, for the, the phone system, 
Uh, but Bell Laboratories put together a series of education material. And of course, when you're uh, eight, nine, ten years old, you're not thinking that philosophically about it, but it was kind of cool. <laughs> but the one that I remember, uh, the one that I remember was, uh, you know, they had uh, Professor Drake, right? Uh, Donald's uh, cousin, the, the smart Professor Duck. Uh, and he was talking about the circulatory system. And he talked about how the red blood cells would take oxygen from the lungs through the arteries to the cells in your body that need it, drop, it off, drop off the oxygen, pick up carbon dioxide, take it back to the lungs so you can expel it. And they had done computer simulations. What would be the ideal shape of a blood cell in order to do this thing which the blood cell does, which is take oxygen, drop it off, pick up carbon dioxide, and take it back to the lungs? So they ran all these computer models and they came up with a, a shape, a design of the perfect red blood cell, which basically is a, a, a disc, kind of like a hockey puck. If you put your fingers on both sides in the middle and squeeze, so they kind of indent on both sides. That's kind of what a red blood cell looks like. The, the perfect red blood cell, according to this computer simulation. So then they took actual red blood cells and they took a look and see what does an actual red blood cell look like? It looks exactly like that. It's a kind of a, a kind of a circular disc with the middles kind of pushed in, not all the way through like a donut, but kind of just concave. So, true confession: at that time, uh, my family was not a church-going family, so I wasn't raised in knowledge of God and, and uh, Jesus and, and all that. I knew that God was there. But I remember thinking, even as a child, even watching this, wow, there has to be intelligence behind, behind this. I didn't think the words intelligent design. I actually thought the words God. God had to create this, right? Because even as a child, and this is before we got into Darwin, this is before we got into evolution, but even as a child, I realized that, you know, if, and, and later I, I was able to articulate this or to actually think it through, if evolution is true and, and if higher beings evolve from lower beings, there would be no existence because if we're saying that the, the blood cell actually evolved into the perfect shape, there'd be no second generation if you got that wrong, right? Because if, if the perfect blood cell didn't exist in the first place, there'd be no second generation. There's nothing to pass forward. And even as a child, I realized that. So blood is very important. And design is very important. And a designer, a creator who loves us is very important. The creator who wants more than just the first generation of, of creatures, of beings, he created the perfect red blood cell to do what a red blood cell needs to do so that we can pass it on to the next generation. And it was much, much later that I was reading in, in, in Leviticus, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Okay, and that's in the context of, you know, do not eat the blood. You know, it's a sin to eat blood because the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's in the book of Leviticus. And it's repeated a couple more times uh, as God is giving instruction to, to Moses. So why is that important? That is important. The, to me, that's very important because when we start thinking through why Jesus had to come in the first place, and we, and we walk through the steps. There is none righteous, nor not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And, and we know that. We, we repeat that often. But it's absolutely true. 
The wages of sin is death. Each one of us deserves death for the sins that we have committed. Okay? And we can't point to Adam and say, well, it's Adam's fault. We had original sin, and therefore the deck was stacked against us in the first place. We each carry our own sin. Okay? And we all deserve to die. There has to be a blood atonement for our sins in order for us to, be holy, or to approach a holy God. But none of us are, are, are righteous, except for the one. So it was his blood that was spilt so that our sins could be forgiven so that we could approach a holy God, so that we could have the righteousness of Christ in the first place. Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. Okay, all of this kind of, in my mind, in my jumbled mind anyway, it all kind of fits together. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So by practicing communion, by having communion, by sharing communion, by being, coming together and, and having communion with each other, we are physically, visibly manifesting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we have the, the body, which is broken, and the blood that was shed, because we can't do it on our own. But we can point to one who has already done it. It's already done. There's nothing more that we need to do or nothing more that we even can do in order to affect our relationship with God except, except what has already happened through Jesus Christ. And by sharing communion, we are saying that, yes, this happened. Jesus gave himself so that my sins can be forgiven, so that I can approach a holy God. That's what we're saying when we have communion. And that's why communion is so important. That's why we have communion as regularly as we do. You know, once a month, twice in January. And if we had it every week, it probably still wouldn't be enough. But Paul continues uh, with his letter. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep which is Paul's euphemism for having, having died. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Okay, now let's be careful with this passage. And remembering the context, the context in which Paul wrote this and, and to whom he wrote it. When he says that we need to judge ourselves, He's absolutely correct. We do need to judge ourselves. He is not in any way saying that there's anything that we can do to be worthy of taking communion. Okay, there's no steps that we need to go through. Okay, there's no rituals that we need to follow in order to be worthy to take communion. That's not what he is saying. What he is saying is we need to judge ourselves that if we are going to take communion and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we better know who he is. And we better know what he's done for us. And we better be in agreement with that and in alignment with that. And we better call him our Lord and mean it. That's what he's saying. Okay, so you don't have to, 
you know, wash your hands seven times and use a clean towel or anything like that. Um, but you do have to know who Jesus Christ is. That's the judgment, the, the judging for ourselves that Paul is referring to. Do you know Jesus? And if you know Jesus, you are absolutely welcome and encouraged, and in fact, in this passage, commanded to share communion so that you can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all it means. Okay, so I would encourage you, as we prepare to have communion in a few minutes, a little bit later on, I would encourage you to examine yourselves. What is your relationship with Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? And if you do, then I would encourage you, because it's commanded in Scripture, that you do partake in communion. Okay, but if you have doubts, then I would encourage you, I would beg you, I would plead with you, resolve those doubts. Resolve those doubts. So if any of you are here today who has not yet put your, your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, being the only way, the only method that we have to have a relationship with the Holy God, if you've not put your faith and, and trust in Jesus Christ to do that, then let today be the day. Let today be the day. Don't put it off. I, there's, there's, you know, I, I can say this with hindsight. I cannot think of a reason, a valid reason, why you'd want to put that, that off. I, I really can't. Because there's, there's no advantage to waiting that, you know, maybe I'll sow my oats and maybe I'll get everything out of the, the way and I'll just go wild for a while and then I'll come back. There, there's, there's no profit in that. I, I, I tried that. And it doesn't work. <laughs> right? Um, because it comes down to a relationship. It's not laws, it's not rituals, it's not rules, it's not do's and don'ts. It's the relationship, the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ, the relationship that you have with the perfect God himself. And if you have a relationship, then you will want to, just out of natural the way that people work, you'll want to do things that are good and right and honorable. And you won't want to do the things that are, are bad and destructive. But you've got to have the relationship. And that's what the Corinthians failed to understand. And by extension, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody in this room, I, I promise, but by extension, the church, the greater church, I think there's a lot of Christians who, again, use Christianity as a badge to show how good they are, how valued they are, how valuable they are. And they've totally missed the point. It's not about merit. And it's not about anything that you get out of it other than the relationship. If God blesses you with a huge $400,000 home and a six-figure income and three cars, then bless you. If God blesses you with a cot in a homeless shelter and clothes on your back, then bless you. And one is not better than the other. Amen. Now, having said that, I will say that there's a, a, a potential that we can flip the other way around. And we can say that those who are, are you know, the most down and out, there, there's a, a, an opportunity for us to elevate them higher than they really need to be. Everyone is level. The blood cells that are perfectly formed in my body are the same shape as the blood cells that are perfectly formed in every other body, right? So my blood cells are not better because they belong to me and that I'm a Christian. Someone remind me I said that whenever I go off the rails here. <laughs> but it's absolutely true. We all have the same makeup. 
we spend a lot of time talking about how special we are, and we are special. We are absolutely special to God, and each one of us, he knows us intimately. And in that regards, yes, we are special, but in relationship to each other, we're all the same. We're all the same. And we know that because Paul continues in his letter, the next chapter, which I'm not going to take time to go through today, but the next following chapters are about the gifts. The, the, the gifts that God gives to individuals. Some he gives a foot, to others he gives an ear, and both of those are equally important. The nose and, and, and the fingers, equally important. They have different functions. Okay, so each of us are different and each of us are unique and each of us are special, but we all have to work together in this body, the assembly, the church, in order for the body to be healthy. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians in this chapter, and that's what he's saying to us because the Holy Spirit kept this letter for our instructions. So then, brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. Uh, and then the remaining matters all arranged when I come. So that's kind of a... And then he goes on to the, the gifts. But be considerate of one another. Be considerate of one another. Having a relationship means caring more about the other person than it means about than, than you in your own... What, what would benefit you. So think about that. Dwell upon that. And that's what communion is. So as we prepare for communion this morning, and I'll invite the, the man to, to, to come back, uh, what we're going to do for communion this morning is we are going to pass out the elements. First, we're going to pass out the bread, then we're going to pass out the wine. After that, we'll have the love offering. Uh, but first, we'll, we'll take care of the communion part of it first. Uh, but let's think about communion. Let's think about why we do communion. And I'm going to go through the portion that we normally go through. I'm going to go through it again. For I receive, this is Paul saying, for I receive from the Lord, having spent time with him. I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So it's not for Paul's benefit, it's for our benefit. Uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, he was celebrating Passover, and he was betrayed by someone who was closer than a brother. But on the night that he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, he took the bread and, and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So remember the body, the fact that he lived and that he gave himself up for us. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And the spilled blood of Jesus Christ is what cleanses us from the sins that we have committed against the Holy God. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, we are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, right now as we go through communion. So let's pray for communion. Heavenly Father, it is a wonder to me that there is even a way that we can have a relationship with you, let alone a way that costs you so much. Father, all we can say is thank you. All we can say is, is uh, humble ourselves and proclaim to you that you are our God and that Jesus Christ is our Lord and it's through Jesus Christ that we have any hope and we gladly and willingly call him our Lord. And Father, those of us who do are looking forward to sharing our bread and sharing our, our cup together uh, in just a few minutes when we ask that you bless it and, and that you bless us for participating because it is for you that we are doing this. In his name, amen. <laughs>